Oh, usually it's a different feeling in the room on the last evening. Have you noticed? Right after t- talking and communicating a bit. Some people were still talking when I came in. Can't hear me? Okay, great. Could you turn this up a little? I don't know how to. Could one of you turn up the mic? Thank you, Thomas. Number four. How's that? Better? How's that? Good? Great. Thank you, Thomas. So, as I was saying, some people were still talking. It's actually hard for people to stop talking once they start. Um, And it always interests me, uh, you know, I always think, oh, it's the young people. They have a hard time stopping talking, but no, it's the the old people too have a hard time. And uh, yeah. So, uh, and again, you'll be able to talk tomorrow after the work period. Um, And so the talk tonight, um, uh, I was thinking about what what we've been doing here, right? As we're going home, right, to the world, what's called the world, as if this is not the world and out there is the real world. But really, they're both the world. And as I said in my talk the other night, that quote from Suzuki Roshi, he said, the world is its own magic. And I appreciate you're going out to the magic of the world every day, whether you're here or whether you're going home or to the San Francisco or Oakland or Berkeley or wherever you might be going, Davis or Montana, it's, it's all its own magic. Just the fact that it all exists is magic that we usually take for granted. And I very much appreciated Kanda's speaking about her brother and the kind of wisdom he had uh, realized um, through life through his life as a young man, as a black man in America and dealing with the suffering and difficulty of what that means to be African-American in a country based on slavery. And also him having to deal with his illness and him seeing his illness as part of his path and him seeing life as the path. And really, very moving and beautiful and even what he was saying about people on scooters who'd lost limbs and how, oh, this is their life. And so a tremendous, what I heard was a tremendous respect for life itself and what I consider the magic of aliveness itself that we take for granted until, you know, we get a little older or get a little closer to death one way or the other. <clears throat> and she had said, at least as I heard it, what, that he wasn't held hostage by his body even when his body was declining. And I love that he let go of his body because part of our practice for all of us is to let go of our body. And it doesn't mean get rid of it or throw it away. It means to let go to relax, to release the attachment or the cathexis or the clinging to body. And the other piece that I'll add in, because both both of what she was talking about, both her brother and her sister Smiley, uh, have to do with the talk that I'll give tonight, which is Smiley said, I feel free at 65. And that's beautiful understanding of what's possible for us 
as we wake up. And part of waking up happens through aging. And what I call the, the wisdom of aging. Or the wisdom of, sometimes it's called the wisdom of the old. Um, and it's uh, highly undervalued in our society, the wisdom of the elderly. Totally, in my, in my view, ridiculously undervalued. And uh, we were ta- I was talking a little bit about it earlier, and Donald said, he said, oh yeah, the wisdom of aging has been the prevailing view most of, huma- of most of humanity until the recent past. And recent past meaning in Western culture. But all cultures in the world, I believe, I could be wrong, but all cultures, whether it be in... in uh, Africa or South America or in uh, Asia or in Northern Europe or Southern Europe or the Mideast, there was a tremendous respect for the wisdom of the elderly because they're the people who knew about life. They'd lived life. And that respect was acknowledged and they got to pass on their wisdom quite naturally because they were wise. They knew something that younger people didn't know yet. And I'm a, I, I like sports a lot. I like to watch sports. And, uh, and, and it's interesting to watch how the wisdom of the elders gets passed on in sports and really I believe in many arts and many domains of learning and understanding that the elderly, the more mature people pass on what they know. And it's how, it's why one becomes a disciple of a great musician if you want to play that kind of music or that instrument. And, and, and so you get not just the technique, you get the heart and soul of what somebody understands. And I believe that heart and soul is sitting right here in each person, in each of us. We all have our wisdom. And so the wisdom of aging and the awakening that reveals it, I was, there's many different uh, metaphors the Buddha used for awakening. And one that I like very much is he used to talk about the sure heart's release. The sure heart's release. And it's a beautiful understanding of our heartfulness and what we care about, what we've devoted ourselves to or given ourselves to in life wakes us up and is part of the expression of awakening in life. And you know, I'm old enough to see a little bit about the wisdom of aging in myself. And part of it comes, I've lived many past lives. You know, they always talk about that in Buddhism, right? And, you know, but really I think I've lived many past lives in this life, right? Like I've had a different life when I was a kid or a different life when I was a teenager or a different life when I was first lived in New York and did street theater. And then I had a different life when I lived in Oregon in a, in a, a commune, a polit- it was supposed to be a political perspective. The street theater moved to New York, moved to Oregon to be a, a, a collective, a, a political collective and do street theater. And we didn't realize there were no streets in Oregon. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were from New York, we were like, you know. And really, it was it was a big big wake up <laughs> to be in Oregon, you know, and and then coming to here. And I was a musician. I became a musician in the street theater because a lot of people were very musical, and uh, and uh, it was uh, it was great. And so I started studying music very seriously, and both in Oregon on the commune because there wasn't a lot of theater to do there. And, um, and, 
um, and then moving here and playing and performing and I had a performing space in my house in San Francisco and people from all around the world performed in my house and because that's what I cared about and loved and that was another that was a whole lifetime of mine that I was devoted to and very involved with and then it changed it it died really and it wasn't that I died but it was just that life changed and then there was a new life and I ended up being a therapist for a number of years and had and went to school I'd never gone to college so I went and got a BA in two years and an MA in two years and I became a therapist and you know that's a whole nother life that I had and people very respectful of that life most people you know I had an office and did all that stuff and yeah, okay, it's pretty good. I used to wear a tie a lot. I like ties, you know. <laughs> it was funny, time, a different life. It was really a different life of mine. And then I got involved in, in Buddhism. And after a number of years, Jack Cornfield asked me to teach. And I was like, okay. And I became a teacher. And I became a teacher in the Diamond Approach also. So both two paths. And so that's a whole nother life that I had. And then the therapist life was gone. And the street theater life was gone. The musician life had died. And they're all, you know, these were all lives in this life. And I think if you look closely, you might see your own lives in this life. And the wisdom that comes from each and that keeps maturing because we're still here, right? And so really sometimes people ask me about, do I miss playing music? And I played improvised music. I studied improvised music, both jazz, but way out there, post-jazz, kind of free, what was called free music. And uh, it was great, totally fun, and I loved it. And really, I would practice eight hours a day because I was very devoted, and I wasn't a very good musician, so I was trying to get better. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I learned a tremendous amount about discipline and about practice by learning how to play the flute. I was a flute player. I also played shakuhachi, the Japanese bamboo flute. And I also played Balinese gamelan, which I loved very much. I liked eth ethnic musics very much. And so I also learned them. And, um, but, and, there's, and so people ask me, well, don't you play now? I'm like, oh no, that was a whole nother life. And I said, but really, I give Dharma talks. It's just like improvising. Same, same thing. The same skills that I learned in improvised music apply to the Dharma. Because it's all happening, really what we keep pointing you at and what I, is all happening right now. And we're not in control of it. It's improvising itself, actually. And so I believe when we age, it, we get a shift in perspective because we've had a whole life that includes many different phases or many different lives. <clears throat> and even if we haven't done everything in life, which of course nobody has done everything, I haven't done everything, but, but we can recognize the pluses and minuses that might apply from what we know to other areas and other domains of life that other people have um, lived in or, yeah. And so there's a kind, I believe, there's a wisdom that comes with aging where we start to relax a little bit because we've done it all, right? There's a lot, we're not gonna redo it again Right? I mean, I've been married a few times. I'm not getting married again. You know, really. And I'm still married and all, and it's good. But if, if something would happen, that would be it. Like, okay, you know, I did that. Actually, actually I didn't want to marry my wife. And she, was, she wanted to get married, and we were living together. But, and I'm like, no, I've done that. I've had it. And she, so she bugged me, and we did some therapy. And then I saw, you know, I was making up an idea that I couldn't get married again. And I realized, oh, and I love this woman. 
and she's fantastic and I'll be, you know, I'll be in trouble if she leaves. <laughs> so, and we got married. And it's great, you know, it had pluses and minuses like any relationship, let's be honest, of course. But, you know, um, there's a kind of wisdom that comes as we've lived through life and we've seen it. We've seen what romance is or what, what work is or what politics are or what happened I mean you know like even watching the politics now which is of course I have my opinions and my reaction and my but I've been alive long enough so I remember a lot of presidents who I also didn't like much right and was you know that's when I was doing street theater I mean we were serious it was a radical political street theater in New York City and we were part of demonstrations every week and we were performing and for for all kinds of people really and in on the left and radical political and you know and outside the box kind of stuff somebody at at lunch brought up SDS do you all know SDS yeah right SDS loved our theater <laughs> really cuz we were we were good and we were in the same kind of world then. And it was a very young world that thought it knew everything. And, you know, it knew a few things, but it didn't know everything. And so now, even though I have my opinions about politics or, you know, I also see, oh yeah, this is just what happens, right? And I, it doesn't mean I like what happens or approve of what happens, but this is what happens as part of political life. Right, it goes back and forth. Hopefully, it keeps going back again. Um, you know, between the right and left, and the people I like or the people I don't like, and even the people I like, I don't like sometimes in politics. But you know, it, that's politics, and so something relaxes where we see the big picture of things as we age, and I believe that's part of the wisdom of aging. And it's part of what the Dharma is pointing us to, is seeing the big picture of reality itself. And so here, I'm, the, I'll read you, this is from a New York Times reporter named John Leland, who wrote, Happiness is a Choice You Make. He wrote a, a book. And I didn't read the book, but I read a little article and said that he interviewed six of the city, New York City's oldest of the old residents, right? Meaning people 85 and older, from diverse cultures, backgrounds, and life experiences. And he said, these people totally changed my life. These people totally changed my life. They'd given up distractions that make us do stupid things and instead focus on what's important to them, right? Because they don't know how long they're going to live, right? 85 and older, that's, I don't know. We have one person 85, yeah, right? You know, you get, you see that at some point you might die, right? That could happen. No, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> good. See, but that's, that's the wisdom of aging too, having a sense of humor about it all. Really, beautiful. Yeah, so he said they, they, instead they focus on what's important to them. To a person, they don't worry about things that might happen. To a person, they, might, they don't worry about things that might happen. They worry when it happens. And even then, they don't worry. Right? They just deal with it. Right? This is part of the wisdom of aging. It's part of the wisdom of the Dharma. That's why we so focus on what's actually here in the present moment. Because this is what we can work with. And then he says that whatever age we are, we can choose to adopt, uh, adapt to whatever happens. That's a beautiful understanding of what's the potential for all of us to wake up and really respond to life, to reality, whether we like it or not, which is another important thing about why we put emphasis on the on Vedna, the you know the the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, because the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral often conditions whether we like or don't like something, and and our freedom is not based on what we like; 
It's how we respond to what we care about. And so gerontologists, 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 I think it's a, yeah, gerontologists talk about the paradox of old age. The paradox, and I like paradox very much. And they said, and they discovered as people's minds and bodies decline, instead of feeling worse about their lives, they feel better. And you know, there's a lot of, a couple, one or two people, or 20 or 30, have a little fear about what's going to happen if their minds decline. Well, trust me, my mind declined, you know, and even when it was actually happening, that wasn't such a bad thing. Everything got very simple because there wasn't a lot of mind to complicate it. But they say, as people's minds and bodies decline, instead of feeling worse about their lives, they feel better. Memory tests recall positive images better than negatives. They, when they give them memory tests, that they, they recall the positive more than the negative, and that when they give them MRIs, that their brains respond more mildly to stressful images than the brains of younger people, mm. right? So something relaxes, I believe, because we keep seeing, learning, discovering the big picture of what it is to be a human being. And that's what one can awake through is the human beingness that's here. And then the other, I did a little research about this because I'm interested in the wisdom of aging. And Eric Erickson, who's a pretty well-known psychologist, and I think uh, he was a psychiatrist also, and researcher about stages of development in human, uh, for human beings, psychological development and maturity. He, he saw wisdom as a byproduct of growing older. Wisdom as a byproduct of growing older. That wisdom arose arose during what he called the eighth and final stage of psychosocial development, which he talked about as ego integrity. And if one achieved enough ego, if one achieved enough ego integrity over a lifetime, then um, the approaching difficulties, infirmity or death, is accompanied by the virtue of wisdom, right? And it so means, and so part of what we do here is we relax our attachment to the ego and it begins to integrate by itself, right? We're still here, we still have a sense of self, but the sense of self isn't just the, based on the conditioned sense of self, or the past or history, it starts to be infused by the Dharma. And then we start to discover the potential for not just realizing the Dharma, but actualizing the Dharma. Not just realizing it, but what happens when our understanding begins to live or be actualized in our lives and in the world. And of course, the key component in our practice that we've mentioned is about not clinging or letting go or coming into harmony with the way things are. Coming into harmony with the way things are. And I love this about, in terms of the body, um, how um, uh, Thich Nhat Han, uh, the Vietnamese teacher, he, he, he's grown older. And he said, he said, when you're young, the body serves you. When you're old, you serve the body. That's, a, that's, that's the wisdom of aging, right? Expressed in the Dharma, right? When we're young, our bodies, if they're working good, well, we, they serve us. We do whatever we want with them and we tell them what to do. But if, as we age and we get some wisdom, 
we see, oh, we have to take care of the body. We have to serve the body so that it's relatively healthy and functional as we keep going. And it calls for our maturity and at times our discipline, which is why I think discipline is an important part of aging. And the Buddha, when he taught mindfulness, he would have this phrase in all the foundations of mindfulness. He would, and I'm, this is about the body, so I'll just tell you. He says, one abides contemplating the body as a body internally. One abides contemplating the body as a body externally. One abides contemplating the body as a body both internally and externally. Or else one abides contemplating the body as it's arising or vanishing, or as it's both arising and vanishing, coming and going, arising and vanishing. Or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And one abides, abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. Right? And this is, the, this is the, what all of mindfulness practice is pointing to. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. And that's a radical teaching. And that's the radical teaching we're asked to experiment with and see what happens if you don't cling to anything in this world. And remember, not clinging doesn't mean you have to get rid of anything or deny anything or throw anything away or not have anything. It means not being attached, not clinging, not grasping or pushing away anything. Here's a shorter version of the Buddha's saying it. He said, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. Right? Very simple, very direct, but serious. Whatever is not yours, let go of it. And of course, in Buddhism, they would say form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness is not yours. It's here, but we don't own it. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, it's all here. It's what makes up what we call a human being, but it's not ours. Because there's no, there's a few different reasons why it's not ours, but there's, it's, it's not to be attached to. It's to be lived with, lived through, and, and used well, skillfully, and enjoyed. You can enjoy it. You have my total permission to enjoy whatever you enjoy. But if you hold on to it, you'll suffer. And there's a difference between enjoyment, pleasure, delight, and suffering. Again, it's all about a shift in perspective and letting go. This is from a, a local woman teacher. Many people know Jennifer Wellwood. And Jennifer, she wrote a poem, she said, my friends, let's grow up. Let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. Everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it, she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. 
Right? Imper- I'm repeating some of the phrases just so you know. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us what's real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyways. The cost is too high, and we're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Powerful understanding that she offers us. And again, that my understanding, that letting go, leads to the sure heart's release. Because it's the holding that bonds us, whether it's body, heart, or mind. It's attachment, it's a clinging, it's the, it's the um, attachment to a fixated reality. And the sure heart's release is possible for all of us. This shift of perspective also was described by uh, Henry Miller. Henry Miller was an author in the last century who, you all are old enough to have some idea who Henry Miller is. He said, I know what the greatest cure is. I know what the greatest cure is. It is to give up, to relinquish, to surrender, so that our little hearts may beat in unison with the great heart of the world. Right, And so he's describing both the individual and the collective and becoming one right here with everything and the potential for the sure heart's release. Marcel Proust said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. And it's what that shift of perspective offers us as we age, as we begin to wake up through the human process of getting old, getting mature, growing up fully, completely. Another way it's described in the Native American culture by Black Elk, who said, peace comes with the souls of people when they realize their relationship, their oneness with the universe and all its powers. And when they realize that the center of the universe dwells the great spirit and that this center is really everywhere. It is within each of us. And so you hear again that mix of the individual and the collective understanding of reality, of its wisdom, and both are here. And you all know something about both of these. You all have your sense of one, the other, and both. Hmm. And I'm, again, read a little bit from... uh, Suzuki Roshi, the same thing he said, because he said it again, that mix, that funny mix. He said, you're living in the world as one individual, but before you take the form of a human being, you are already here. He says, already there, always there. We are always here, right? It's the mix of the individual and something greater. That may be true, that he pointed at. He said, do you understand? We are always here. You may think when you die, you disappear. You no longer exist. And even though you vanish, something which is existent can, cannot be non-existent. This is the magic. 
We ourselves cannot put any magic spells on the world. The world is its own magic. Just life itself is, where does it come from? I mean, I know technically how it happens, but you know, in the human form and in other forms, but where does life itself come from, right? And is it in the whole universe? I don't know. You know, we haven't met another planet like this one exactly, or other beings, you know, except in the movies we've had communication, but, but isn't, it's kind of wild. And I appreciate the wildness that Jennifer Wellwood pointed at because I believe it's sitting in each seat, the wildness of life itself. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, he said, I discovered to my joy that it is life, not death, that has no limits. I discovered to my joy that it is life, not death, that has no limits. And so joy is part of the magic of reality because it's a mystery how it all happens or where we come from or what's gonna happen. We don't know. And it's, you know, we started with the not knowing talk, right? And we're finishing with it in some sense because we still don't know what's gonna happen. But we can start to get more comfortable in the space of not knowing. Actually, this is not in my talk, but I'll throw it in. Uh, one of my favorite Dharma books, spiritual books, is called Freedom from the Known by Krishnamurti, who was a famous teacher in the last century. Freedom from the known. And this is true, I thought it was such a great title, I never read the book. <laughs> I didn't need to know anymore. He, he nailed it in the, he, he knew that what we know can become an obscuration to what, to, so that we don't see what we don't know. And so as the, the veil of the known begins to relax, the unknown becomes the setting for reality to reveal itself. And it has a certain kind of joy to it, or pleasure, or delight, or magic. Not always, of course, but it's part of the deal. I mean, sometimes it's, if we just shift perspective, like I believe it's one reason why we like to take vacations. If you go somewhere else, we have all of a sudden, we have a new perspective. Oh yeah, this is not my house, right? This is not my usual, familiar, ordinary, reified world. Oh, the world's magical or mysterious and hopefully delightful at times. William Blake put it this way when he talked about letting go. He said it this way. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I mean, that, that's the whole dharma, right? We can't bind ourselves, we can't, we can't hold on to everything. Like Jennifer Wellwood said, you know, uh, right? We, she said something about we can't hold on to everything. Everything that can be lost will be lost. It, we can't hold on to anything, really. The holding on is all an idea in our hearts and minds. But we can enjoy everything or anything that's enjoyable, that's good, that's beautiful, that means something to us, full permission, enjoy it all the way, right? Just don't, don't bind yourself, right? But kiss the joy as it flies, be present with it as it's here, and it lives in eternity's sunrise.
often we get attached to our non-joy. We get attached to our suffering. And you know, it's kind of normal human and also in my opinion, it's uh, part of the uh, our time and place and especially Western uh, cultures West in America, especially it's a psychological culture. And so um, uh, what's wrong is very important to everybody. And that makes sense. You know, with the difficulties or what's wrong or what's not right. But, but we get so familiar with what's wrong that our identity gets based on something's wrong. And we fail to see what's right at times. This is from W.H. Auden. He said, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. And that's sobering truth. It's a sobering truth for all of us because we all have some of that attachment to what's familiar and the suffering is familiar and people are mostly nice to us when we're suffering and, you know, and it's just, but it's not the only thing that's here. And so seeing the beauty that's here, I mean, look, I mean, it's one of the beautiful things and why practicing in nature is so good for us because we are nature, right? So we, we resonate with the trees or the plants or the sky or the earth or the water. And, but we, we forget that, oh yeah, the sky is within us. The earth is within us, right? The water is within us. And of course, technically in Buddhism, they would say, oh, it's the earth element or the or the water element, or the fire element, or the air, wind element, or the space element is a fifth element, right? And those elements make up nature and make up us. <clears throat> so, we, sometimes we fail to see the beauty or the miracle of nature. I mean, who made up trees, right? And I, like, and I am a city guy, right? I still live in San Francisco. But one of the things that happened after my accident was how much affinity I discovered with nature. And I live right next to Golden Gate Park and we walk in the park all the time. I did a lot of walking in the park as part of recovery. And how good, how welcoming, how kind nature was to me, right? Just, just to go out and walk every day. And, and I still walk, we walk a lot and walk, and in the park's relatively very safe. We walk at night in the park after dinner, you know. Not every place in the park, but lighted areas, and it's beautiful that nature is here and just gives itself freely. So this is from Walt Whitman, who was an American writer. He said, who makes much of a miracle? Why, who makes much of a miracle? As to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. I know of nothing else but miracles, whether I walk the streets of Manhattan or dart my sight over the roofs of houses toward the sky or wade with naked feet along the beach just in the edge of the water or stand under the trees in the woods or talk by day with anyone I love or sleep in a bed at night with anyone I love or sit at a table at dinner with the rest, or look at strangers opposite me riding in a car, or watch the honeybees busy around the hive of the summer forenoon. Have you seen any of the bees around here? Where, where the teacher village is, we have this one plant. I mean, every time I walk by it, it's just these bees. 
they're just doing their thing like crazy and they're so alive and vibrant and beautiful, right? And he keeps going, he says, or the animals feeding in the, mir- in the fields or the birds or the wonderfulness of insects in the air or the wonderfulness of the sundown or of, the, of stars shining so quiet and bright or the exquisite, delicate, thin curve of the new moon in spring. The, these with the rest, one and all, are to me miracles. They, the whole referring, yet each distinct and in its place. To me, every hour of the light and dark is a miracle. Every cubic inch of space is a miracle. Every square yard of the surface of the earth is spread with the same. Every foot of the interior swarms with the same. To me, the sea is a continual miracle. The fishes that swim, the rocks, the motion of the waves, the ships with men in them. What stranger miracles are there? Beautiful understanding of reality, right? And he didn't do a lot of practice, but something. He did something. He woke up, right? And it's available. And you all know it already. You've all had some experience of some of that, of the miracle of just being here. And, you know, partly, right, you know, sati, the word that's translated as mindfulness is the root comes from the word to remember. And it's just remembering what we know. It's all wild. It's a miracle. It's a mystery. It's magical. And we already know it. And it's true, we forget, but even the forgetting's a miracle, right? How does that happen, that we forget what we know? I mean, really, that's totally wild. more quotes from our ancestors and teachers. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, uh, who said, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and that practice or achieve this or go into that or understand this or read the suttas or understand the Abhidharma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita, getting ordinations in the Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences. Just let go, (laughs) let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Just Just let go. And Eugene likes the word relax, just relax, let go. And then I'll, I'll end. I just have all these nice quotes. So I want to read them all to you, but I won't read them all. Let me see. Sure, I'll, I'll, um, I'm going to end with uh, Kalu Rinpoche. 
beautiful being, Tibetan teacher. Oh, Kali Rinpoche, yeah. He said this, very, again, very simple, short, direct. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Let's sit for a minute, please. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.